I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the architectural photographer Helen Binet. Binet grew up in Italy and found her way into architectural photography following an earlier career as an opera photographer in Geneva. Just as she would capture figures on stage emerging from shadows, her pictures of architecture tend towards the theatrical. Buildings and spaces seen through Binet's lens are often closely cropped and dramatically lit, rarely revealing an entire object and instead framing a particular moment or atmosphere. I met with Binet over Zoom in late December 2021 from her studio in London's Kentish Town, and we talked about, among other things, her encounters with the Architectural Association in the 1980s, which led to some of her first commissions, the reasoning behind her adherence to analog photography in an increasingly digital medium, and the shift in focus in her more recent work away from contemporary architecture, focusing instead on historic ruins and the natural world. Binet has an exhibition on at the Royal Academy, which ends on the 23rd of January, so if you're listening from London and have yet to see it, there's still time left to check it out. And now, here's my interview with Helen Binet. I hope you enjoy it. I wanted to start by trying to understand how you developed your photographic voice. I read that you actually started by working as a photographer for an opera house, photographing stage performers in Geneva. And I wondered if you could talk about how that experience has informed the way you photograph architecture. Um, Yes. I think it's always interesting to see, you know, how you get somewhere and it's probably made of many different experiences. And one of them was probably the opera house. Now, um, is it the fact to photograph an opera or is it to be part of this big house where there's such a big collective work and it is the influence of the music and the dance, which has been very important for me? Um, I don't know. Mm. Uh, I know that some people um, notice that maybe my way of photographing were somehow, especially in the beginning, the, the subjects seem to be coming out of darkness, uh, seem to be uh, kind of uh, born out of a situation of darkness where the light comes and is revealed, could have been an influence, influenced by the experience of the theater. Uh, if it is, it wasn't conscience. Uh, let's say that for me, 
using light in extreme situation with, let's say, the work of uh, John Hedrick of Daniel Libiskin come from more um, a passion for photograph uh, that I've seen from the, the work of um, uh, Man Ray, uh, Molinagi, and this desire to experiment with everything. You don't see something for just what it is in front of you, but you uh, look at it uh, upside down and uh, with different lighting and there's no there's not the idea that there is a fixed image so lighting always has been a way for me to bring out particular aspect of something and make the rest silence to me it's helpful to think about the relationship between um, the theater and the photograph as far as your work goes and i i was reading more about um, this link that um, uh, Mark Pimlet actually made in uh, a write-up of your work um, in 2019, where he was talking about how the emergence of bodies from darkness into light and their movement demand a particular kind of photographic attention. And I think maybe that's what I'm getting at as well. There's a specific form of attention um, that is less about the totality and more about the specific. And to me, this is something that's, that's very distinct or particular to your work. Um, and I wondered at what point that became a way of working for you. I definitely agree that um, that preparation, which is with the staging, with the lighting of having that, that incredible moment of concentration it is a very, very constructed moment for to make sure that the music, the staging, your attention, it's really focused. And probably uh, in my work where I have to deal with something which is very different because the experience of space, it's this, this fluid moment where you, you receive information from so many different senses, and you're moving and you see and you remember. And there is this desire to uh, then focus and say one thing and make a structure in the same way to be able to communicate one thing of architecture or space or emotion that are related to the space. So I think um, there must be a strong connection between the, the, you know, the, the really um, the preparation of the theater and uh, what the a stage is trying to create and the way I start to create an image. I want to try and establish a similar sensibility in this interview. We move through a series of very particular moments in your life and your career. And I actually want to go back before your work at the Opera in Geneva to your decision to first study photography and the kind of photography you were studying, which I understand was bent more towards advertising. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Rome and I had a very free education. I didn't go to any school until I was maybe 16 and run around right, so, in this beautiful city. So you were homeschooled until you yeah, were 16? Yeah. And I did a lot of music and dance and that was very much what I liked to do, but I wasn't particularly talented for that and I knew that wasn't something I could do. So uh, at one point somebody told me, oh, what? Well, 
I would have liked to go to an art school, but maybe was a bit scared of being lost into something. And uh, just a friend of mine said, oh, there's a photographic school uh, here in Rome. Why you don't join in? Um, I said, oh, great. Um, that's a really good idea because maybe all this interest I have in music, in art, I can bring them. But I was very concerned to also be able to have a proper craft and a profession and not uh, get lost. Um, so it wasn't because I was attracted anyway by the world of advertising. Um, uh, it was because that was the school I had in Rome and I, I could have gone to, there was a very good school at the time in Zurich, but the idea of learning German really put me a bit off and I wanted to do it now. Um, so I said, you know, if it gives me a good technique, then I will use it. And I mean, I'm still glad that I had this very technical approach where it's a solving problem all the time and nothing conceptual, absolutely nothing that belongs to your inner world or thought or we must have read two books over three years. I mean, it was really technical. Mm. But it was because that was the school in Rome. That it, there was not many other schools then. A lot of the architectural photographs you take don't follow the conventions of architectural representation in photography insofar as they're not presenting a product to be consumed and they're not pretending to tell you everything you need to know about the building. Um, and in that sense, they veer more towards a kind of fine art practice than a commercial practice. Um, and, I mean, you mentioned Raoul Bunskoten, who's your partner, and as I gather, was influential in kind of bringing you closer into a certain kind of um, relationship with architecture. He introduced you to the Architectural Association, is that right? Yes. What was the AA like in the 1980s and how did that kind of influence the way you thought about representing architecture? Um, I mean, the 80s, late 80s, I think it was an incredible moment uh, because of um, what was going in general in architecture, you know, it was a big recession and it was not about building an iconic building and becoming rich. So there was this desire to really reconsider uh, what architecture is. And um, the place managed to attract incredible student and uh, professor. Um, Zaha had it studied there and then became one of the teacher professor and Daniel Libiskin was around there, Peter Cook, Peter Salter. It was really a very, very fervent moment. And the idea, the, the, the energy was about reinventing, not making an exquisite product to become, become an iconic architecture. So it was obvious that that was not the intention. And Alvin Boyarsky um, was the dean of the Architecture Association, a wonderful 
wonderful men that um, really create that place, choose the, all the future, had a lot of intuition. And then he had two passion was books and photography. So let's say that I was very, very lucky to meet this person. And also he had the talent, we had the capacity of uh, discovering talent somehow, <laughs> because he always was with young people. And he gave me a chance when I had done nothing. Uh, nothing interesting in architecture. Not, I mean, very, very little. As I understand it, he was responsible for one of your first architectural photography commissions where he asked you to photograph two churches in Sweden, um, St. Mark's and St. Peter's, designed by Sigurd Leverance. Yeah, only one, unfortunately. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's not Mark, but uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so this was, this must have been a really critical moment and opportunity for you. And the photographs that resulted already, to me, they seem already like fully formed Helen Benet photographs. <laughs> like there's something very surprising to see in these very early works um, that in some way a sensibility is already in place. Yeah, I mean, just time-wise, I think I had photographed the collapse of time, a structure that by John Hedrick that was built on the square before that. But it, it wasn't a building really. So it was also, yeah, the constructions and then the final piece. So it, it's slightly maybe different than mm. a building. And just for listeners who might not be familiar, this is a pavilion designed by John Hedrick at the Architectural Association in Bedford Square. I'm so curious what that was like for you as someone coming into this specific culture of architecture from another discipline, um, in a sense, as a kind of alien or interloper. <laughs> um, and to some degree, it seems like that's a position that you still inhabit as a photographer, where you don't make any particular claims to architectural expertise, and instead you fully occupy yeah, another position altogether. What? Just tell me more about the kind of position that you were staking out for yourself in these early days when you're photo uh, photographing the work of Haydek or Leverance. I think there's two things I'd like to point. With Haydek, maybe with both, I had a sensibility for architecture and I probably had a sensibility, but I didn't know anything about architecture. And the work of John Hedrick, it, it's quite obscure for somebody that doesn't come from a school. And so it's not something you easily refer to and say, oh, well, let's go back to this image bank we have in our brain and photograph this way because you have seen it. If I had to photograph, I don't know, a iconic building of the 20s, I would have seen a lot of photographs. No, there was nothing like this. So I imagine the photograph were a way to understand and not to represent. It was mm. a, a way for me to really look at it and touch it and see how is it built and how is it does it feel and why this piece and what what is behind this. So let's do it at night where it looks more like even more alien than and like an animal or like an 
creature coming to this uh, London square, which is a very classic square, very beautiful, very, very fun. Um, I think I was very lucky to, you know, to be able to photograph something of architecture that had no reference for me and be almost like a child that discovered the world and you're curious. Um, it is a dimension that I wish I can <laughs> still have it because it's very beautiful not to have a bank of image behind you. Apart of, of course, you know, I, yes, let's say Man Ray, Molinegi, and all this beautiful way of wanting to see the world again was always with me. Uh, I cannot deny that I was completely, you know, uh, without any other visual experience. I cannot say that, but yes. Um, it must, in that sense, become increasingly challenging to maintain that sense of um, unfamiliarity or retain a sense of novelty as far as architecture itself goes, as the bank of images inevitably accumulates for you as you continue to work. Like, is that ever a struggle remaining curious or to a certain extent naive to the architectural object? Um, because I almost don't work on commission anymore. It's not where I want to go. It's more for me investigating place to understand some human condition, some of the things we are looking for and why in a more, let's say, spiritual place, a spiritual way we need spaces and how does it reflect our thought and emotion. So, uh, that bank of image doesn't really matter um, mm. anymore mm. as a something, let's say, a bit scary <laughs> and invading. Um, and when you say that you don't take commissions, what do you mean by that? Are all your projects self-led now? Or how do you actually, um, how do you sustain the practice? How do you make money if that's the case? Yeah. <laughs> um, like, like summer, I had a wonderful commission to look at the, to photograph the work of Gottfried Böhm in uh, Cologne uh, to celebrate his 100 years. And it's in Cologne. The commission came from a museum in Cologne. All the churches are 10 minutes, half an hour from the museum. There's no need to explain anything. He by now wanted to be just celebrated. So the commission is about uh, make something, Ellen, that connects very deeply with his work. And of course, for me, it's a commission that I will take. Mm. And, um, but let's say, um, doesn't happen every day, is it tougher? But I, I, I take work where um, it is about telling a story, a new story, or an interpretation of the building, and we, there's no need of representation. Mm. And then the rest is self-initiated. I'm really interested in the, the way you divide your work between these commissions you accept and then the work that you initiate on your own. I imagine at this point in your, your career, um, you're in a position where you can do almost precisely the work you want to do. Um, I feel like I'm jumping the gun a bit here, but we might as well just follow this tangent. Um, what, what are you naturally drawn to 
Yeah. Um, it's a nice way to put it. Naturally drawn. I'm also very much drawn into uh, about nature. Mm. Uh, architecture mm. is not the only thing that I'm drawn to. Mm. I read that um, in an interview in 2012, actually, that you gave. You mentioned that you'd started photographing weeds, and you'd been collecting photographs you've taken of weeds, and started kind of. I guess, gathering them in a project that you'd refer to as fields or field. I'm curious what, what's happening with that now, because that interview took place a while ago. It's been almost a decade. And I imagine there's this like ever-growing archive of these types of images now. Um, tell me more about what the status of this field project is. Um. It started by yeah by being attract drawn let's say also because I I for the architecture work I travel a lot and sometimes I see things that um, touch me very much and this also this concept of um, what is in nature that is somehow considered uh, interesting and uh, for us to cultivate and what is the other one that we have to cut and doesn't belong so. Um, I somehow had a kind of strong interest in this plan that nobody wants. <laughs> <laughs> and, but the idea was then to photograph in a way that look, they look very common, those fields. Uh, but because I did three, I exposed it three or four times on the same film with different focusing fields. If you look at it closely, you don't understand where you are because sometime in the first uh, plane of the image you have something in focus and not in focus and normally this doesn't happen you have a field which is focused and then maybe out of focus and then mm. it's quite organized and the, by changing this i was trying to give something a uh, little bit awkward um but during the lockdown, I had to work every day. I didn't want to not do something. So then I started to um, decided to go completely at the opposite that I've done. I traveled very far. I photographed structures that don't change so much that I concrete break made by human being. Uh, and um, decided to, and where I have this technique obsession to have everything in focus and very control. And then I said, let's do the opposite. Let's not travel. I can't travel. Let's photograph things from very, very close and very delicate and changing, like drying flowers and sometimes in colors and plants and things that are completely, they will exist only for one moment and then don't exist. They will not exist anymore. But this is a still a process. I don't think I, uh, I'm enjoying a lot and I'm enjoying also to work with color a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, it's still a working process. Um, mm. I, have, I want to find a way he will join, it will join architecture. Uh, but it's still, yeah. To me, it seems um, prescient or topical that your focus is increasingly drawn to not only the natural world, but to these overlooked um, you know, instances of nature, <clears throat> and in particular of the weeds. Um, because 
to me, it speaks to the the thrill of discovering uh, what was al- always there, <laughs> or what what was hiding in plain sight. There's a sense of um, real enchantment at a kind of rediscovery of a of a form of a natural world that we'd always overlooked. But I think that same thrill to me can be found in all of the work that you've done. And I want to focus in particular now on the Sujo garden photographs that you did. There's a book that was published earlier this year, I think. Um, so these are photographs of garden walls in the classical uh, gardens in Suzhou in China, where there's more color, I think, in these photographs than in past bodies of work of yours. And being a garden, there's a fixation on um, uh, the natural world that, again, um, was less kind of present in previous projects. And in particular, you trained the camera on the walls of these gardens themselves. Can you tell me about the decision to to focus on these walls in particular, which are often very weathered and show um, the intricate patterns of aging and um, disrepair? So this project came about because I was invited by the Contemporary Museum of Art in Shanghai to do a show, which did happen, where I brought about 100 print from my collection. But they say it would be nice if you do something Chinese. We will give you a budget and you can. So I was very happy, but I thought I don't want to do contemporary architecture. Right now, I want to maybe go a little bit to understand more uh, where I am and in the deeper old root of the culture I'm, the, you know, that is inviting me to do this show. And I've been to the Suju Garden very quickly. Uh, a year before, one evening, noticed the walls um, and heard many stories about the garden and the walls. Also, at one point, somebody said, oh, because I heard lots of stories about these gardens. The Chinese love them very much, and they're right to do so, that some of them are called theater of shadows. And because in my work, I've been doing essay and work on shadows and space and architecture, I said, oh, okay, let's have a look. Maybe uh, I can do something uh, about the gardens and these walls. Um, I, I tried to talk with some professor in China about the garden and to gather information. But one of the things that really struck me was always this garden is going to be hard for you to understand them because they are deeply rooted in our history. Uh, often the inspiration comes from a calligraphy and a calligraphy gets the inspiration from an old painting. And it's really, it's really very, very much of a Chinese um, yeah, tradition. Um, and it's not so easy to explain like a re- Renaissance concept about some order and some proportion. It's something that is, you can't really touch it. It's there and it's been changing and coming. I was a bit puzzled because I thought, well, maybe I don't understand, but I can feel that's something we all can share. And uh, mm-hmm. I went there 
um, the garden themselves didn't interest me a lot because they were they're very busy, busy of people, but busy also of stone and plants. But the, the walls immediately attract me. And they're interesting also because they peel off and on. And sometimes there's a double wall to have a bit of light coming. They're, they're quite complex. But then I started to look and I said, you know, I'm not in, in Greece here. There's not this interesting shadow. It's not about shadow. This will be to bring my own culture. But let's think about more um, the, the walls are walls because you cannot, you should not go further. It's not only about being protected, but it's also a limitation of, and when you, your body cannot go, your imagination can go. And that mm. was for me the very important thing. So what can I do to bring imagination and get very close? And then I noticed that the, the humidity is creating all that moss. And that moss looked like Chinese painting. Mm-hmm. Just looked like a brush. Mm. I love this this kind of conundrum of starting to work in another culture. And accepting that, to some degree, it will remain incomprehensible. But you said you couldn't understand, but you could feel. And it reminds me of um, a passage in an essay that the architect and historian Juhani Palasma wrote in the monograph for the, the RA exhibition. And he was saying that um, your images, and I'm quoting him now, accentuate materiality as if they were intended to be experienced through the skin rather than the eyes. We are not usually aware of the fact that all of our senses are modes of touching and originate in the skin. And I too have this experience when I look at your photographs and especially the Sujo ones where they become somehow tactile and I think it's this fixation with the texture of the surface and the, also the abstraction of the image into a kind of texture itself that for me elicits that experience. But I'm so, I guess, grateful to writers like Palasma for being able to unlock that sensation. I mean, to what degree do you ex- experience that yourself or do you agree with that assessment? No, I... Uh... I agree a lot with his writing and also um, I, I read a lot of his book. Uh, this, I mean, him and Bachelard have been for me quite important. Mm-hmm. Try to, um, well, let's say, formulate things that I always felt. And um, the, the complexity of why do we feel something when we are somewhere is uh, it's rather uh, yeah, overwhelming. And it is funny that at the end, as a photographer, I often say, oh, let's not celebrate the eye. I mean, it's not only the eye that counts. <laughs> and it's a bit of a funny thing as a photographer to say that a space, uh, it's bringing you uh, emotion and thought through many ways, but maybe we are too much celebrating by thinking that everything comes from there.
Let's talk more about, for you, the importance of the analog in photography. I mean, digital photography is, of course, the norm now, and in some ways um, is more or less expected. And yet you remain a steadfast adherent to analog film. Um, why is that? Why, why not experiment with um, the digital? What, what's so critical and crucial about uh, remaining a film-based photographer? Of course, in art, you have amazing work done with digital photography where people have been thinking uh, about what is, what is this tool and use it in a very interesting way. Um, it has the value of any other form of expression, to just a tool for that somebody chooses. In a profession, um, it's, a, it's easy and it's understandable that everybody wants to go to make the work cheap and easy. And uh, so uh, why not? But there is a problem, I think, of... Um, absence of originality in the profession more than in art where uh, the work looks very much the same and where you don't have many obstacles because technically you can resolve late. So um, you don't push yourself somehow the same way. You're talking about the reliance on post-production. Yes. Mm. And this is a moment that I think uh, I like to talk about it because if you know you can fix it late, if you know you can make 300 pictures and I can make only 20, maybe 25 a day, your concentration is not the same. It's never, it's like being a theater on a, doing a performance or do a recording. If you are there and you've got to do your best and the Film are heavy and they're expensive and you can't find them everywhere. And go, you go into a kind of intense concentration that is not the same. If you kind of say, okay, well, let's feel something, let's do it, and then we will find out. Mm. I mean, it reminds me of the way I conduct these interviews, which is very much in line with the kind of digital <laughs> mode you described where... Um, that I still like to think there's an intensity of focus, but at the same time, there is a reliance on the post-production um, and this acceptance that um, it's really in the editing where you can start to reveal or unpack or bring into sharper focus um, the, the most significant contours of the conversation. But I think that aside, there is also... Um, a kind of parallel editorial practice that comes into play regardless of whether the photographs are digital or analog in the way that an exhibition itself is put together and how images are selected to be shown um, collectively to communicate something larger. I wondered if you could walk me through the process of developing or just producing this most recent exhibition at the Royal Academy. How do you select from a body of work that spans over, is it 35 years? Something almost, yeah. <laughs> I mean, did you come up against any struggles or any revelations or 
opportunities to reinterpret your own trajectory as you look back on your archive? I mean, I'm always quite amazed um, about how my earliest photographs were so much there. And um, I didn't know what I was doing, but I know that was the only thing I could do. And uh, I always tell young student photographers that trying, you know, just trust at the beginning, there's something very, very precious in us. And uh, maybe it doesn't have the full form or the complete understanding or the technical knowledge, but in, in the middle of our 20s, we are very powerful creature. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. it's very important to, to just trust yourself. I think it encouraged me a lot to be lyrical, to just let it go, to say, okay, there's structures, but I don't have to control everything. And I, there's so much that can be said in a simple way. Um, don't show too much. Don't always, I try to articulate a lot of stories. I like stories. I like pairing because I think I like the books because I think always, oh, this is a wonderful way to, uh, experience space again or architecture again but then this exhibition also told me sometimes you can have one photograph um, that's okay I'm interested in this comment about um, or this insight that so much of your practice was already there in the earliest work you did and how we are such powerful creatures when we're in that period of time in our lives when we're in our late adolescence or an early kind of adulthood. And it just makes me wonder, I mean, Boyarsky must have in some way been a mentor to you or a champion of yours. As you start to approach the later stages of your career, to what degree are you becoming a kind of mentor or champion for a new generation of photographers? Um. Well, I don't have a platform in the sense I'm not teaching in a regular way or I'm not, um, yeah, um, I, am, I take invitation to talk to students to look at work. But often it's mostly to the architecture world because somehow I'm not very much into the radar of the photography. There's a bit of a thing that, also, that's why sometimes I don't like the word architecture photography. They think it's a trade. It's a, it's a profession where you are somehow celebrating commercial aspect. And uh, I hope this exhibition will somehow lift the status of, uh, if we want to call it architecture photography, to something that uh, is considered a genre mm. and has a power and an interest and developed as any other genre even if we had this wonderful exhibition at the Barbican constructing world and I think that was an example of what uh, photographing space can be but still I think there's a lot of work to do that in that direction also Um, but I definitely have often student of architecture uh, contacting me Mm. I mean do you so, I mean, it sounds like uh, the work really is in trying to elevate the status of a particular approach to architectural photography that 
kind of um, foregrounds the the work as an artistic practice and an inherently kind of fundamentally creative process uh, over the kind of um, the merely commercial. Um, I'm still interested, and this is going back to a question I asked earlier, where you, you have now the ability to be selective about the kind of work you take on and you're doing more self-initiated work. Are you looking to a new generation of architects or does that interest you? I mean, where, as far as architectural photography goes, where do you look to do new work now? I must say I mostly look at historical architecture. Mm. Um, a few years ago, I was always interested in young practice and also wanted to especially help young practice where you can feel that the work is there, but not yet completely out. Um, but if I initiate a project, it's probably going to be historical architecture. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Um, why is that? Uh, maybe that distance in time allowed us to... Um, notice or to also um, how to say um, in the end it's about how different cultures have been expressing a similar concern and with time we might have bigger difference with different culture we have different uh, differences of course we are all a bit romantic about ruins and traces and uh, and also the interpretation it's somehow allows you to go more free. It allows you to completely revisit something. Um, I, I started something about uh, Villa Adriana in Rome, where I was trying to understand the energy of this uh, emperor, inspired by the book that uh, Marguerite Yonsenar um, wrote about him, that is absolutely wonderful book where you really enter the life of a quite interesting emperor that was not in, didn't want to just expand, but he wanted to consolidate it. And he, wanted, he was interested about innovation. And he, he created those cupola and he created the Pantheon, but there's smaller cupola that he did in Villa Adriana. It was the same energy that Wanzar had it did. The fire station is about fighting gravity. And you know, human beings have been fighting gravity when they built since the beginning. And where do you find this? Um, just to that point about romanticizing or the romance of the ruin and its association with your interest in historical architecture over the contemporary, it also seems to link up to this fixation you have, or at least it have for um, a significant part of uh, the work you were doing with the construction site, building sites over kind of the finished product. And... I think in another interview with you, I read, you were kind of openly asking yourself this question, why do I love photographing building sites so much? Um, and I wonder if it does have something to do with that sense of estrangement or defamiliarization that one gets in a construction site, which could be, in a way, a kind of ruin, or at least 
a place where one doesn't yet belong. I think I get that sense when I look at historical architecture as well, where visiting it from the present, um, you are a stranger inherently. And um, that distance, I think, somehow seems to be part of a sensation that's present in a lot of the work of yours I've seen. I think it's very beautiful what you said about this uh, sensation of a working side of something that will be. And you see uh, the structural, um, how fundamental the structure is to become something. And you imagine the rest. So it's a very open moment of observation where you, are, you don't gather everything, but the rest, it's you that will make it. And of course, as a photographer, you are very free because you can, can. And then the ruin is about, yes, what you perceive, but you know that there was something. And I think those two moments are very beautiful and uh, they are about you imagining, which is the most important things of what you want to do with an image. Because in the end, if I cannot let you imagine, I just give you an information. And that's not what I want to know. I want you to get enter and imagine. Mm. I wondered if we could go back to, well, I guess speaking about narrative and your interest in film, you talk about um, elsewhere this idea of the cinematic tradition of the illusion. Uh, I'm just going to read your words back to you to kind of, uh, as a prompt, I guess. So you've said, um, in the cinema, there is this beautiful tradition of the illusion, a wonderful gift that I felt recently while watching Cinema Paradisa. And my question is, is architectural photography part of this tradition? Could architectural photographs act like magic lanterns, transporting you away from the ordinary? In photography, the concept of space is almost scary. Only a bit of magic can take it away. I guess, first of all, what is the cinematic tradition of the illusion? If you know the film, there's a moment where somehow there's so many people that want to see his film. And so I should have set this up properly. I'll just say this is the 1988 film by the director Giuseppe Tornatore. But sorry, continue. Yes, uh, there's a very important moment where uh, it's, people cannot come in, in anymore into the cinema, it's too full. So the projectionist decided to turn the camera and he does it very slowly. So you see this film moving through the building of the room, the, the window, the picture, and then suddenly being on the people. And then he projects it on the a building. And um, it is really a celebration of the magic. It's a little village, people want the magic of an image. And, I think that moment for me was a revelation about uh, the image and the building and the change and that 
idea that the light is creating something that takes you completely away. And we so much need that magic to be taken somewhere else. I wanted to have this in my photograph that it's not only about saying what is place is made of and where it is and where's the entrance or the exit, but you use the light to transport you. And this light, it can be moved because you know architecture, it's not nomadic. You can't put it in your pocket. You can't take it somewhere. Um, but photography is uh, like cinema can be projected every anywhere and yeah that was what i was trying to express um mm. to 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 bring to bring something into architecture photography which is um which is this amazement that we have when we looked at the first lantern with image turning and uh, we travel somewhere with this very simple device. That sense of portability um, seems important to you. And you've mentioned, I think, in a lecture you gave at Harvard, uh, also maybe back in 2012, uh, this quote by the poet Pod Claudel, where he is describing photography as translating that which is flowing and transient into a portable square. And I've also read that the book is your favorite format through which to experience photography, presumably, again, for its portability, but maybe even more importantly, for the intimacy that's generated when someone beholds a book. Maybe this is a place to kind of draw the conversation to a close. What are the, what are the kind of future formats of your work. You talk about projection, but equally you're excited about the book. Um, in a way, what's to come for you in the way your work is represented? As you mentioned, the book always been for me, uh, I mean, at least probably for every photographer, a fantastic form of expression because um, the unfolding of the image and the fact that you can remember one but not see it have very measured white space to have your imagination flowing. You know, I remember some of the early book I did with Lars Müller. Uh, one day I arrived in his studio and he had printed all the book where whatever was image was just gray that we could only look at the white space in between. So a book is made also a lot of silence and moment of... Uh, and because of space and the, the fact that we most of the time move in space uh, and we have something we've seen before and we imagine after and we know there's maybe a window here. And so in, in a book, you, you can really uh, unfold and go back. It's a bit cinematographic, yes, but not completely because I think the, 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 the memory and the imagination works a lot. In the cinema, the memory, I don't think it's so, it's, it's a lot about anticipation more than remembering what, what happened before when you look at the film. Um, but let's say that I became more and more interested in, in very small books. I think 
Uh, I've done a few larger books and monographs, which are wonderful, but I think the experience of having like the Suju Garden or something very specific, small, you, hand, you, you can really carry it without too much effort. Um, you have one moment of experience when you look at it. It's definitely something that I think it's, it's very playful and successful, and I would like to work more uh, in that dimension. But, you know, it's also life. You, you, you said something that I said in 2012 and about books and series of image, but then I do the Royal Academy and sometimes I think, oh, well, one picture also, it's, it's, uh, I don't have to overload it. And I can step back and let it live. Um, you know, especially young people, we start to say a lot and we want to put this and we want to put writing and we want, but then there's a point where you also said, okay, well, maybe I don't need so much and I can, uh, I can uh, let it breathe alone and that would work too. Uh, so you take some position and then after you also discover new things. Mm. Helen, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure. It was a big pleasure for me. I was a bit like, oh my God, I feel empty. I have nothing to say today. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you said a lot and I'm really grateful. So yeah, thank you again. Wonderful. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Special thanks this week to Helen Benet and her assistant Yasmin Bruno, as well as Vicki Richardson and Alexandra Bradley at the Royal Academy. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.